This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There's a lot of problems in the world. Thanks, Mike. That's why we turn to you and subscribe to your show. And by the way, if you want a version of that where I banter and debate the premise with two other people, Not Even Mad is excellent. It's out right now, episode two. It's a corker. So what do we do? What have we done for the last uh, couple hundred years, at least in uh, advanced societies, to address these questions? We vote. We have popularly elected leaders rather than just following the rules from on high. And so you get spectacles like Israel, where the populace there was monitoring the Benjamin Netanyahu corruption trial and said, that guy, the defendant, we want him back as our leader. Sweden has a government led by a former neo-Nazi party. In Italy, Georgia Maloney describes herself and her fellow fascists or quasi-fascists in her ruling party this way. I am described as a danger to democracy, uh, to Italian, European, and international stability. Here in the U.S., there are vigilantes at the polls in Arizona. A deputy says that there were called to a report of two armed people in ski masks outside this ballot drop-off location. And over in Pennsylvania? There's been a lot of legal back and forth over what to do with mail-in ballots that arrive on time to be counted, but are missing a handwritten date on the envelopes they're in. Again, these are ballots that officials already have in hand, so we know they were mailed in time because they already have them in hand. But the courts are still saying, yeah, hold them aside. Maybe we won't count them. Who is this all working out for? Yeah, I know. Elections have winners and losers, and the winners are going to be happy. And I further know that ballot chicanery is at the behest of Republicans, and they're inspiring the guys monitoring the drop boxes with guns. But is everyone happy? Democrats are despondent. Are the Republicans happy? The Republicans seem actually highly agitated. Maybe not the leaders, but the rank and file, they're not happy with what's going on. They're deeply upset. And so I tell you this and give you this good news. Of all the U.S. election challenges, take into account Sweden, Italy, other European countries where the right is on the rise, not just the right, the far right, the populist right, the dangerous right, it all pales in comparison to one development that I just can't believe. In Brazil, Lulu da Silva won, which is good for Brazil, but it's this next part. Jair Bolsonaro, the current president, seems to have accepted the results. I don't know why, but it seems to be sticking. It is the most salutary development in this hemisphere in years. Brazil is 200 million people. They desperately need good governance. This alone will deliver them from an electoral democratic, undemocratic abyss. It seems weird that I'm giddy over the lack of calamity, but calamity was in the offing. If you want to say, well, that's where we are, huh? Yeah, it is. But I say, thank God it's where we are rather than the alternative. Kari Lake still may win here in the U.S., but in Brazil, where the stakes were enormous, democracy's already won. 
on the show today. Paul Pelosi's attacker was a nudist activist. I have questions. But first, speaking of the unhinged, the unwell, and in this case, the elected, Robert Draper has a description and a diagnosis of it all in his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. It's a disquisition on Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and who knows what new fringy members will become office holders soon. Robert Draper up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Like many of you, I was appalled, but I have to say fascinated by the rise of such fringe figures as Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar, who is there but became more fringe or revealed himself to be. And I was fascinated by them. And then I became disturbed by them. And then I began to question how fringe were they? How effective might they be? How much were they really affecting policy and discourse beyond the place that they had set up, not just in the minds of their parties and their followers, but to some extent, their enemies, my mind? There's an excellent new book written by Robert Draper that talks about these people and this movement. It is called Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Hello, Robert Draper. Welcome to The Gist. Hey there, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Where were you just intellectually when you first heard about the election of, say, Green and Boebert, who came in in the same wave? Well, I thought that it was meaningful, but it wasn't clear to me how meaningful. I I guess when I at the time that this occurred, November of 2020, and a month later, I got a contract to do um, what would become this book. I was of the belief that, well, you know, it's it's significant that the Republican Party as a host body um, would not uh, uh, immediately expel these kinds of people, but instead welcome them. But it wasn't clear to me that, that they would be important figures. They would just be more emblematic of uh, the extremes that the party was willing to take on, to accept. Obviously, what, what, what transpired in the ensuing months um, was something I had not predicted, which was far from them being marginal characters, they became dominant ones. Well, dominant, make the case for dominant because they were stripped of their committee assignments. Madison Cawthorn lost in a primary. So how, what is the uh, proof or signs of their dominance? Sure. So just quickly to dispense with Madison Cawthorn, um, the the chief offense that he committed was to accuse his fellow Republicans of throwing cocaine-fueled orgies, an accusation that was wild, outrageous, and one he could not prove. But fat was found sufficiently offensive to Republicans within his own conference that they, as one, mounted a primary challenge against him. And so he's out of there. Let me interrupt you. Uh, Wild could not prove 
outrageous. None of those things are disqualifying. It's that last part that they were offensive to his colleagues that got right. him. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it's because wild, outrageous, unproved um, things describes in many ways the social media posts throughout the years of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, as you're indicating, one month into her tenure as a congresswoman was stripped of her committee assignments. But that very, you know, just within weeks after that, Mike, she posted this unheard of initial fundraising quarter of $3.2 million and proceeded thereafter to become one of the major fundraisers, really the, the fourth highest fundraiser of the 210 Republicans in, in the House, uh, trailing only two who are in leadership, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise and Dan Crenshaw. On top of which, she has now become one of the the dominant messengers. Um, I think you know, sort of. Uh, this is this has surprised the party itself. But you now see someone who's you know considered pretty mainstream, like Nancy Mace, um, running on uh, on on LGBTQ, you know, the, on on groomers and and uh, and things like this that clearly th- that are talking points that have been furnished by someone she can't stand personally, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But but she's using that because she knows it's a wedge issue that works. And so so Greene has in a lot of ways insidiously um, become a major force. And and uh, and uh, and McCarthy certainly believes so, because he's now like offering her uh, uh, plum committee assignments, even after she had been stripped before. And those include um, judiciary and oversight. So um, so Green's not going to be someone he just humors. Green's going to be someone who's going to help control the agenda. Why? Because she is the proximate MAGA warrior at a time when the Republican base that is MAGA-centric um, is yearning for a brawler that Donald Trump had um, once was and still is, but no longer holds an office from which he can uh, from which he can brawl. Green can do that and does do that. Is her fundraising prowess a symbol of her power, or is that her power? Uh, yeah, it's both. I mean, that's a, that's an interesting distinction to make, Mike. But it's, um, uh, for example, when um, just before she was stripped of her committee assignments. Republicans were outraged also to hear these um, conspiracy theories that she had been espousing on social media to see them surface. And they said, this is going to be a problem in our districts. We're going to have to answer for all this stuff. And so um, Green got on a conference call with the NRCC and with her fellow Republicans and basically said, I'll cut you a check of like a you know, couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and, uh, and the NRCC said, Oh, okay. Thank you, and and uh, and um, became supportive of of Green thereafter. So, in that sense, it has it has been a source of her power. But I think it's also just a reflection of her power and and the astuteness. I hate to hate to use that word, but but the cleverness with which she has come to recognize that being outrageous and being obnoxious is what raises you money online, and she has proved that more than any other Republican. She, I don't know if we have any listeners who like Marjorie Taylor Greene. We certainly have conservative or Republican listeners, and they would, maybe they're thinking right now, well, doesn't AOC do the same thing? I have smart listeners. They're not saying they're the same person. But isn't it a similar dynamic? What would you say to that? Well, I mean, I, I do think that that Ocasio-Cortez has been, you know, um, you know, way ahead of the curve when it comes to recognizing how you galvanize, uh, you know, the... The, 
the flank of your uh, of your constituents in this case progressives uh, by saying memorable things you you achieve you know um, uh, and maximize online donations as a result of that obviously where where the distinctions are significant is that um, uh, that AOC unlike green does not harass her colleagues openly does not um, uh, liken the opposition to um, uh, uh, describe them as unpatriotic, uh, liken them to um, you know communists or whatever, uh, and uh, and does not say things as extreme as Green did the other week when she said that uh, uh, Democrats want Republicans dead and the killings have already begun. You know, it's 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 hard to to I mean, one can rustle through the, the most ill-advised rhetoric that AOC has ever uttered and um, and be at pains to find something like that. And to that and and when Green said that, that was just like a, a random Tuesday. You know, it was I mean, she followed up the next day with was something even nuttier than that. Absolutely, I agree. And the truthfulness of each is disparate. Um, if someone listening doesn't like AOC and they'd say, oh, she exaggerates, sure she does. And maybe you could even point to times that PolitiFact has said her pants were on fire. But come on, Marjorie Taylor yep. Greene, Jewish space lasers, what what uh, you just heard Robert saying about the killings have begun. But each has, in a way, recognized a failure, a market failure, and they're each channeling the popular sentiment. And so I wonder, like in the case of to use AOC as a place to anchor our minds, uh, her followers would say, that's righteous. That's mostly righteous. There is a crowding out of that sentiment among entrenched interests. Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing the same thing. But what could be done about that? Just beating back what the populist sentiment is among the MAGA crowd? Is there anything that were once the establishment Republicans or anyone else could do to address that sentiment? And once the sentiment is there and once someone has identified a way to draft uh, onto it, what can be done? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that you know, it's so to take the case of Ocasio-Cortez, um, for as much of a uh, darling of the left as she has become, um, she doesn't control the Democratic Party. She doesn't control the House Democratic Caucus, not even close. Yes. And, 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 uh, yeah, Nancy uh, Pelosi, I don't think, is scared of her. <laughs> not in the least. No, right. no. It's, and, and, and that's been made manifest in, in committee assignments to energy and commerce, for example, when, when Pelosi stiff-armed Ocasio-Cortez and awarded it to Kathleen Rice. By, by marked contrast, Kevin McCarthy has essentially ceded um, a great deal of authority to the people on the right, Jim Jordan, he has cut this deal with where Jordan will be chairman of judiciary and basically let McCarthy hold the gavel in return. But um, holding that gavel uh, means very little when um, policy and messaging will basically be formulated by Jordan and people like Green. So it's it's a it, and so what what begat this distinction? Uh, you know, it's um, I'm not a historian, but what's certainly the case is that um, Trump. Um, catalyze it or intensified it. That um, the, the hold that this man, twice impeached, no longer holding office, um, continues to have over the Republican Party um, has no precedent in the history of American politics. And, it, and um, no matter what establishment Republicans um, wishfully hope for, uh, um, the reality is that if Trump wants to run um, in 2024, he's going to be the nominee. 
And uh, and and as with 2020, the Republican National Committee platform will just simply be whatever whatever Mr. Trump says is what we adhere to. His stranglehold over the base um, that uh, if they don't comprise the majority, uh, numerically speaking, they certainly uh, uh, comprise the the most activism uh, and and the loudest voices in the room. That stranglehold is is remarkable and doesn't seem to be you know in any way. Um, uh, declining. I am fascinated uh, about what makes these characters tick, and the book lays that out in, uh, I think, authoritative detail. Also, there the interactions among them. Does Lauren Boebert personally like, admire, feel rivalry with Marjorie Taylor Greene? Let's throw some other people in the constellation. Gates, uh, Goser, what do they think of each other? How do they interact with each other? Uh, that's a great question, Mike. I, um, I think you're the first to ask me that. And and uh, the so to break it down, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates are running buddies. I mean, they're very very tight with each other. And uh, and I think the person that they most admire is Thomas Massey, the the allegedly libertarianish um, uh, uh, right wing Republican. Um, Bobert presents a separate case. Bobert and Gates get along, but but Bobert and uh, Green do not. Um, they have felt a kind of rivalry towards each other. And as it's been described to me, um, Green, who is um, I think what 12, 13 years older than Lauren Bobert, uh, tried to um, got the inside track on online donations, and and certainly her closeness to Trump uh, predates her even. Taking her oath of office uh, has um, has tried to be helpful to Bobert, but that um, that uh, Bobert has sort of trash talked Green behind her back, and and she's aware of that. So there's th- these people by no means present a unified front. Paul Gosar, a person we've talked about before, um, is viewed even in those ranks, you know, among Gates and and uh, Green uh, and Bobert as something of an unserious guy uh, who's uh, a bit of a grasper when it comes to attention. He's significant, Gosarius, because he still does have uh, an active following on the far right. And also because Gosar presents this sort of cautionary tale as a guy who's been around for a while. He's, he's, he was with the Tea Party wave in 2010. Yeah. He has this neurological disorder um, that probably means this may be his last uh, his, the last race he runs, he, he maybe only has a couple of years left, and he wants to get some legacy projects done in the meantime. But um, uh, even the bipartisan legislation that he wants to introduce is not going to find Democratic co-sponsors because Gosar won't even acknowledge that Biden is the legitimate president. He literally never calls him President Biden. He calls him Mr. Biden. And so you know, Democrats have told me, look, even, you know, if I agree with Gosar's legislation and on a nice day, you know, in ordinary times would sign on to it, I can't get my colleagues to sign on to this when the guy who's, you know, who's the author of the legislation won't acknowledge that Biden is president. So there, there are these distinctions to be drawn in some between all of these people. If Republicans take the House, which looks like a quite plausible if, Sketch out for me the power of Marjorie Taylor Greene, and maybe we'll go through a couple of the other figures in your book. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that, that um, uh, so she has said to me, uh, you know, on the record, McCarthy's going to have to give me a lot of power and a lot and a lot of leeway. And not because he loves me, but because the base loves me. 
and and he loves the bass or can't do without the bass. So what form will that take? I mean, committee assignments I already mentioned. What's much more significant is that there will be, as Green promised to me, a lot of investigations. And that ranges from, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop to supposed malfeasances on the border to um, to the FBI and its supposed illegal search of, of Donald Trump. And um, and there will be almost certainly, you know, an impeachment inquiry. I mean, you know, who the hell knows what resolution will come to the floor. Uh, Green herself has offered a plethora of them. Uh, from literally day one of Biden's presidency, she has called for his impeachment. McCarthy has has said out loud that he's not sure that's such a hot idea. That's very much McCarthy um, talking to uh, independent voters and more mainstream Republicans because he knows that they don't want to go through you know um, another couple of years of this. But I don't think he has any choice either. You know, it's, uh, and, and Green has made clear to that. And she's had discussions with a lot of her fellow Republicans about this as well. And what about Jim Jordan? He'll be pretty powerful, right? Among the most powerful. Jim Jordan, as I say, will be uh, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And, you know, Jordan has been convinced by McCarthy that he, Jordan, cannot muster enough votes to be House Speaker. Uh, and and as proof of, of McCarthy's mastery of the inside game, he's he's locked up enough votes. Um, now, the, the Greens and Jordans have have most of them have withheld uh, their endorsement of McCarthy because now is the time to extract all the concessions you can um, from him. But they'll probably fall in line because there's there's um, uh, there's there's no alternative. But a Jordan will profit handsomely from a McCarthy speakership because McCarthy really doesn't care so much about policy. And uh, and he is willing to cede as, you know, in a lot of ways, the chief messenger uh, on judiciary uh, to cede that voice uh, to, to Jordan. And again, Jordan, who came in, uh, well, I mean, McCarthy campaigned for Jordan when Jordan was first running for Congress, uh, which I think was also when McCarthy was, but McCarthy won his, had his district won. And so he actually donated time and funds to help Jordan's. They were first allies then because uh, Jordan was a House Freedom Caucus guy, really uh, had a falling out with with McCarthy, really uh, campaigned hard against him. McCarthy, again, much as he has with Trump, figured, I'm never going to get to the promised land of the speakership without the support of Jordan. And so that means that in return, um, uh, he's giving Jordan basically whatever he wants. Yeah. And I would just submit that I don't think that Jim Jordan believes it. I think that he's not an honest person, but he understands power and he's willing to say, quite eager to spin out his uh, fast talking scenarios of what may have happened. And he understands what his people want to hear. But this brings me to the idea of if you're delusional, isn't it uh, an Achilles heel? Um, You know, Senator McCarthy was delusional and maybe an alcoholic and that undid him. Roy Cohen wasn't delusional and he survived. Will being delusional prove to be a, uh, might it sow the seeds of the downfall of someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Well, so let me clarify that, you know, in, in, in my title and subtitle, Basically, Marjorie Taylor Greene is the weapon of mass delusion. The mass delusion is actually the electorate, tens of millions of them who have been deluded en masse into believing these things. Yes, as we were stipulating before, Greene believes this stuff. Jordan probably doesn't. Greene, I'm not sure. I mean, does she, 
you know, again, if she can't like, uh, you know, dissect and describe the entire conspiracy, what does she really believe? She just believes basically that Democrats are liars and cheaters. And so and and, and everyone she knows loves Republican, uh, loves Trump. So um, so it must have been stolen. But but the real danger, I think, Mike, is how um, these lies have been ingested by so many people. And I do not know how how. Um, <laughs> that bell gets unrung. I mean, I uh, when you interview, as I have, you know, so many um, uh, conservatives at MAGA rallies and at conservative events, or or at um, uh, uh, or at campaign events for uh, for people for other office. I mean, you hear just stated as an article of faith that the election was stolen. That if we're not careful, twenty twenty two will be stolen. Witness, you know, the these you know people in their Kevlar vests and, and and paramilitary gear, you know, uh, standing around um, drop boxes in Arizona. And um, I mean, when uh, when you have tens of millions of people who believe that January the sixth was take your pick an ordinary tourist event, a setup by the FBI, or all the violent work of Antifa. Um, and when you believe that a great replacement theory is underway at the border, when you believe that COVID vaccines are either ineffectual or killers, take your pick. Um, when you believe all this stuff, I, I, you know, that's you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene believes some of it, but she also recognizes that this shit's good for clicks. It's good for online donations. And she, and she is heedless to just how this sits with um, uh, the electorate that takes this stuff in. Um, well, I'm here to tell you it has set, it sat deeply with them. It's deeply embedded in their belief system now. It confirms the biases they have against the left. And I do not know how this gets flushed out of the system. That's my predominant concern. Robert Draper, one of the, one of the best congressional chroniclers that we have. Robert Draper's new book is Weapons of Mass Delusion. Robert Draper writes for the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic Magazine. And he's written such books as Dead Certain, The Presidency of George W. Bush, O to Pine for a Time When He Was the Thing to Worry About. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. It was really a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. David DePape, attacker of Paul Pelosi, was a few things. Homeless, a blogger, for a time affiliated with the Green Party, for a more recent time, a believer in some QAnon theories. He was also a nudist. Not just a nudist, or maybe even technically not himself a nudist, but he was certainly a nudism activist. Nudism activist. Now, I got no hang-ups, man. I'm not a harsher of the collective mellow. I, myself have been nude. In fact, by way of full disclosure, and to paraphrase Lady Gaga, I was born that way. It's as the goddess made us. And if you want to go to a nude beach, I say that's cool. Wear sunscreen. But it's where nudism becomes nudism activism that I begin to at least wonder. Call me a square. And hey, we all need a calling. But when yours is not just being occasionally or frequently naked, it's being naked and agitating for change, that combo, that does get my mind to wondering. How does that work? Carrying a pro-nudism sign, fine. Wearing a pro-nudism sandwich board, you're no longer a nudist. Perhaps I'm judging nudist David DePape too harshly because I base a lot of my knowledge on interviews given by his former girlfriend, sorry, life partner, Oksan 
Gypsy Taub. Here's Taub in a phone call with San Francisco's ABC affiliate asked whether DePape, maybe it's DePape, she and the reporter pronounce it differently, whether DePape had extreme beliefs. When I met him, he didn't really have, uh, he was only 20 years old. He didn't have any experience in politics. He was very much in alignment with my beliefs. His beliefs aligned with hers. She was a nudist rights activist, and so was he. Taub, you should know, was calling from the California Institution for Women in Corona, California, where she is serving time. I will read from the DA's press release. The defendant, a 50-year-old woman, became fixated on a 14-year-old boy in 2018. Over the course of 14 months, she sent him numerous obsessive emails, created blogs directed at him, used his friends to send him messages, and eventually tried to abduct him. Ultimately, a jury found Oksan Taub guilty of felony charges of stalking, dissuading a witness, and attempted child abduction. She was also charged with, and I am not making this up, five misdemeanor counts of annoying a minor. Yes, I will say. Now, maybe this is all just an unfortunate development for the salt of the earth up by their non-existent bootstraps nudist community. That the two most high-profile activists therein are a wannabe child abductor and a wannabe political assassin. Like John Wayne Gacy gave all clowns a bad name. Or, and hear me out, nudists, while nudism is fine, arguably fine, being a little too into nudism could be a warning sign. Nudists, as a rule of thumb, and I do hope to God it is a thumb, just want to be free of the world's encumbrances. There is no evidence that nudists, naturalists they call themselves, are more dangerous than the clad. I found a few, very few studies on nudism. One from the Journal of Happiness Studies, and it was titled, Naked and Unashamed, Investigations and Applications of the Effect of Naturist Activities on Body Image, Self-Esteem, and Life Satisfaction. Nudism is good for body image, the report finds, though the authors do say things like, quote, across multiple countries, attitudes toward public nudity appear to be improving. And by improving, they mean getting more permissive. So it's a little bit of a thumb on the scale. Again, please assure me that is a thumb. But there is something about the activist part that calls into question if the enterprise is just a cover, sorry, nudist trigger word, for some other weirdness. Yeah, yeah, I know nudists naturists will tell you it's not about sex. Come on, it's a little about sex. If nudism is just natural and sex is just natural, how can we automatically cordon off these two natural phenomena as never coexisting? Sometimes the nakedness is going to flow into the sexiness. Don't say it doesn't happen. And yeah, yeah, I know. The nudists aren't so different from you and I. They put their pants on, no legs at a time and all that. But I find it suspicious, and I do wonder if you do too. I have lots of experts in the GIST audience, including psychologists and nudists, which happen to be two walks of life, and which shrink is a disparaging nickname. It doesn't usually happen, but I have noticed a phenomenon whereby damaged people will be drawn to certain activist communities because what's really going on inside the person is maybe a little bit dangerous, but they think if they could channel it into activism, it will be, I don't know, sublimating or could lend legitimacy to what really is internal turmoil. The activist group stands for something more high-minded than an individual who's simply just bad with boundaries. Maybe the anger aimed at society for oppressing you via fabric 
is really some different issue. And organizing around the quirky transgression of nudism leads to or is a piece with some more sinister urges. I don't know. Seems to have happened here with the pape, with Taub. Taub didn't want to be made to wear clothes, but also she doesn't want to or can't help but transgress against other basic rules of safety. Is the behavior intertwined? Does one lead to the other? Does Gypsy Taub tell herself that a cover-up is worse than her crime? And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the Gist's assistant producer. He was once also accused of annoying a minor, jostled his little helmet with the light on it. Joel Patterson is the Gist's senior producer. One day, he has a couple minors who will find him annoying, guaranteed. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. She has a strong conviction that sometimes minors annoy her. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, hey Bob. <laughs> hey, penis looks great today. 